Chelsea Fairless and welcome back to another episode of and just like that recap what are we calling this wait (laughs) I don't know babes this episode was chapter three but before we get into the recap how you doing Chelsea well I had to take an uber here because my car is infested with rats (laughs) I'm serious bitch like the rats are out for me. Oh, I've heard about this before of like rats getting into people's engines and they yep. can't drive the car. Yep. That happened to me. Mm-hmm. Because you know how Tat was out of town for a few weeks? Yeah. I drove her car during that time because she has a fancier car than me. But because I didn't drive my own car, the rats took over. They built a literal rat's nest in my back seat out of like old like receipts and shit. It's so fucking dark. Did you just discover this this morning? I discovered it yesterday morning and I still haven't dealt with it. Like I can't. I mean, I had the exterminator come over and like try and tell me like how to prevent the rats from getting back in. Who's basically like, yeah, there's nothing you can do. Just set like rat traps. Oh, I thought he was going to say, you got to set the car on fire. <laughs> I know, I might have to do that. It's so gross, Lauren. And it's like, I am really fucking pissed that like, there is it like a man around to deal with this? Because like, I don't want to deal with this shit. And my wife is like even more of a little bitch than I am when it comes to like rat infestations. Well, now that I have a man, has it fallen to him to deal with this? <laughs> Would Paul come over and... Uh... <laughs> No, I can't. I can't ask him to do that. It's too it's too cruel. I am truly speechless. I have no advice. Yeah. You know, one day you're making fun of that chick on TikTok that lives in the rat house. And the next day you are that chick. (laughs) Oh, so you have no other recourse than to become a TikTok influencer. Oh, yeah. I'll be a rat influencer. (laughs) Great. I love that for me. Anyway, um, (laughs) there's really no good transition from like rat car to Kim Cattrall on The View. But here we are. (laughs) Here we are, guys. What did you think? I, of course, was thrilled to see our girl on my show. I couldn't help but notice that The View TikTok, Toot Sweet, was like, let's get that quote up about how the head of HBO called her for this cameo. I'm happy she went on The View, obviously, but if I was an end just like that cast member, I think I would be fucking pissed. You know, a lot is being said in what's not being said in these separate, very PR-prepared statements between Sarah Jessica Parker who went out of her way to say that she's in the scene with Kim Cattrall, which, you know, I think is... She is in the scene, though. She may not physically be in the scene. I know, but the scene... But when you get a script, like, you're in the scene. Right, but in the script, it would say (laughs) off-screen, (laughs) O-S. So I think it's, it's leading the viewers to have an expectation that I would just like people to understand is not going to happen. It's from everything we understand. And what is in the Variety article, it's a call. Right. <laughs> and evidently one of Kim Cattrall's demands was that she would not see any of the actresses. <laughs> so it feels, that's what I mean by like, there's a lot being said and what's not being said. Totally. I love how she alluded to her demands in the View interview though, because she was basically like, the president of HBO called me and said, what could we do? And then she says something to the effect of, well, one of the things that I wanted to do was bring back Patricia Field, which does feel like very much of a dig at Molly and Danny, especially because it's not like she doesn't fucking know them. They dressed her for years. Four years and on two films as well. Yeah. I mean, again, it makes us think that there's something more to the story of Patricia Field not coming back to it and just like that. But she is booked and busy on Emily in Paris. Exactly. And Kim Cattrall alludes to, because Patricia Field not only dresses her for her cameo in and just like that, but also dressed her for her show Glamorous, which, by the way, is the real reason she was on The View. It wasn't just a hype up her cameo and then just like that. But she went out of her way to say, Patricia Field is so busy, she could only dress me on Glamorous. Right. But still, I think there's a little bit of an inference that's kind of like, well, you know, the 
president of HBO called me and said, what can we do to save this sinking ship? You know what I mean? That's the ellipses. Which, again, I feel like is a bit rude to the cast and the crew and whatnot, but here we are. Also, she wasn't just there to promote Glamorous. She was also there to promote... She has another father thing happening. It's not how I met your father. It's... It's about my father, which is the comedian... Sebastian Malcascano? Malcascano? I have no idea what you're talking about. He's a comedian whose whole personality is being a New Jersey Italian-American, so it's extra embarrassing that I cannot pronounce his last name. Right. I think his whole comedy, from what I understand, is about his kooky Italian family, and Robert De Niro plays his father, and I believe Kim Cattrall plays his mother. Well, I loved when she was talking about working with Robert De Niro because it was very like he feels me out I feel him out and we go for it vibes you know what I mean <laughs> no rehearsal just like feeling it was, it was so giving that and I absolutely loved that no intimacy coordinator for our massage team. <laughs> but of course it's amazing to see Kim can't wait to see her on in just like that And I love the moment at the end of the interview that Whoopi has with her. Whoopi calls Kim a journeyman actress, actor, and that she means it as a huge compliment. Kim takes it as a compliment. And it felt like two journeyman actors who've seen some fucking shit. Oh, yeah. Bonding. Okay, but Whoopi built her up only so Joy could callously tear her down. Did you hear when she was like, didn't I see you play Miss Havisham recently? yeah. To which Kim was like, no. She was also like, not yet. I'm not there yet. Didn't I see you play the skeleton from Tales from the Crypt recently? (laughs) Oh, that wasn't you? Oh, wow. It's crazy like et to joy that was so savage and uncalled for and if you would like to hear us talk about kim cattrall's new netflix show glamorous we'll be getting into that on our after show and just after that (laughs) yes we will and not to continue delaying talking about this most recent episode of and just like that but we have a bit of housekeeping so let's play a call hi lauren hi chelsea um cass here longtime listener love you guys dearly um i just wanted to call in and make a quick note um ltw's mother-in-law and all of her friends are wearing hot pink and green because they are members of a um historically black sorority known as the AKAs. just wanted to put that out there love you guys thank you Thank you to all of the fuckettes who called in about this. Lauren and I do have some major blind spots and sororities and fraternities are certainly one of those things. Yeah, it's not that we didn't go to a diverse college. We just went to a college with no Greek life and we very purposely chose a college with no sororities or fraternities. Well, our college didn't even have sports. Like that's where we're coming from over (laughs) here. But this is a super iconic sorority, a.k.a. is short for Alpha Kappa Alpha. And there are some seriously major alumni, including Rosa Parks, Coretta Scott King, Toni Morrison, and Star Jones. <laughs> you saved the most important for last, <laughs> I noticed. Oh, and uh, Kamala Harris, our current vice president, who apparently her Vogue cover... The colors of the backdrops were in reference to the colors of this sorority. And this is another question I have. What came first, the AKA branding or Maybelline Great Lash Mascara? Someone please call in and let us know. I will not attempt to answer this. We are also aware, and it's something we got into on our after show, of the timeline inconsistencies having to do with Harry and his dead mother who was referenced in season six as not being with us. However, in episode two, he says she died 10 years ago. Yes, thank you for that. And also, yes, we are well aware that Seema's fuck buddy was the Prada salesman in season six, which is something we mentioned last Last season. But it's been a minute since we checked in about that. So before we get into it, do you have any general thoughts on the app? It was fine. I no, I it was, <laughs> you don't have general thoughts. See, I thought it was good. I thought it was a big improvement personally, but let's get into it. Let's hash it out. This episode starts with a scene in Bryant Park. Carrie runs into her it girl downstairs neighbor, Lizette. That's her name, right? Yes. Remember? 
Remember Carrie's neighbor? Yeah, she's not a sugar baby like we had thought. Yeah, she's one of Bulgari's three uh, jewelry designers to watch, apparently. You know, I'm not sure why you would want to set up a a jewelry expo in the middle of a public park, but, you know, the consequences of that will happen later in the episode. I also love when Carrie references that Bryant Park is hallowed ground because New York Fashion Week used to take place there. Another very historically significant thing that took place there was Carrie's wedding to Mr. Big. (laughs) At the public library, yes. Where this conversation took place was a mere stone's throw away from where she beat John James Preston III with her wedding bouquet. I thought you were going to say this was also the site of the lunch in season four when Samantha gets all the sex positions and they make the comment, remember when the economy was good and we could get a table? Yes, that as well. I also like when Carrie said to her, I thought you only existed in the vestibule of our apartment building because I feel like when you're a New Yorker, It is freakish to see your neighbors out in the wild. You know, it's like seeing a teacher outside of school. It's like you're confronted with their humanity. Right, because you only know them in a very particular context. Yeah. This is Lizette's nonsensical first floor apartment that has no number on the door. She has such a better apartment than Carrie. Can we talk (laughs) about that? A fuckette actually DM'd us with a theory that I actually think is pretty viable, which is that... Lizette may move out of that apartment and Carrie will buy it and renovate it. So she finally has like a rich person house, but she's still in the same apartment. It's a rich person thing in Los Angeles, especially with actors, where they'll just buy the homes around themselves. And then her transformation into Sarah Jessica Parker herself will be complete. So Carrie just starts buying every apartment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, also, one thing that I think is bizarre about the apartment, too, is that Lizette's apartment has all these, like, pre-war moldings and stuff that, like, Carrie's apartment does not have. Clearly the landlord or the owner of this building live there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Carrie is on her way to record her audiobook. At one point, Lizette says, and I forget why, what the context is, but she goes, you're Carrie Bradshaw. Nothing embarrassing about that. The context is Carrie was like, I'm going to record my audiobook. It's embarrassing. I'm like, that's not embarrassing at all. That's actually like a very cool thing to be doing. What Carrie does for the rest of the episode is embarrassing to get out of recording her audiobook, but not going to record one's audiobook. I disagree, but... We'll get into it. Meanwhile, uptown, Seema is viciously mugged of her beloved ostrich Birkin. Get it, Chelsea? Because, you know, Samantha wanted a Birkin, and now Seema has a Birkin, but it got stolen. This bag does make sense for Seema as a character, completely. Although, I do agree with you. I wish they had given another designer bag a glow up in the way that Sex in the City gave the Birkin a glow up. Or maybe not a glow up. It entered into the public consciousness after that Sex in the City episode. Yeah, this Birkin storyline calls into question the reality of sex in the city in this world because Seema, while talking to Carrie, is driving around the block hoping that they just took her wallet and ditched the bag. That shit happens, though. Sure, but she references the fact that I bought it so long ago there wasn't even a wait list, which that's the whole thing with Samantha and the Birkin was that she had to go on a wait list. So she's been rich since, like, the early 90s, potentially? I would have loved if it was like a Steven Sprouse Louis Vuitton bag or something. Something that ties it to another time period, but that is something that she would still conceivably carry. And also feels more realistic that a mugger would take the wallet and ditch the bag because there's no way in the existence of the Kardashians and how much they have popularized the Birkin that a average mugger wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to try to sell this. Yeah, but we don't know who this criminal is. We don't know how many episodes of the Kardashians they've watched. But this does continue a trend and feels like a nice reference to Sex and the City of uh, characters being robbed of their luxury items. 
Also, that totally has been me, by the way. I have run down the street in a caftan chasing a robber. It wasn't my bag. Someone stole my phone out of my hand once when I was walking down the street. That's wild. It was rough. But what was even rougher is that I was meeting my friend at like a blonde redhead concert. This really like (laughs) dates this story. And I had to like find them without a phone. What is this, 1997? I'm guessing it was like 2005. Anywho... Charlotte and LTW are at a school meeting. We learned that Miranda introduced LTW to Naya, who LTW will be interviewing for her upcoming documentary. And then here is where we get introduced to LTW and Charlotte's storyline for the episode, which is the existence of a MILF list. Ooh. I'm not mad at this plot line. Yeah, all right. I, I think it's light and fluffy and fun. The MILF list I don't have a problem with. The who creates the MILF list and like that turn I have a bit of an issue with. Okay, well, we'll get into that. But I do think that Kristen Davis and Nicole Ari Parker really shine in these comedic scenes together. They work really, really well together. Oh, yeah. No, I have no problem with the MILF list. It's the fact that they don't fully... Should we just get into the whole MILF list storyline? Yeah, story sure. What are you it? holding back? Jesus Christ. My issue with this storyline is not the MILF list. I think it's very fun. Again, it, it is giving rated our modern family, but I'm here for this. <laughs> it is the turn where they find out that a boy has written the MILF list, which again, makes sense. But then there's this like weird turn where they lust after this underage boy. It's very notes on a scandal. Well, but it's, it's also to die for. And it's like, either give me a to die for storyline or fucking don't even go there. That's my issue with the storyline is it feels like the woke objective they have doesn't let them fully go there. I'm fine with them lusting over a 17-year-old boy, but there's no there there. And this continues to be my issue with this show. See, I like the fact that it was politically incorrect because I feel like we very rarely get these kind of scenes anymore. So I thought it was a fun throwback in that way, even though they were overtly sexually objectifying um, a child for all intents and purposes. Also, that boy isn't that hot. That's true. <laughs> we need like a Timothee or like a young Michael Pitt or something. Yeah, I guess also my issue is I'm fine with the politically incorrect storyline, but when there's the meeting at the end where this is going to stay on Milo H's permanent record and LTW invokes that maybe we shouldn't because of our commitment to restorative justice. It's I like, love that. <laughs> is this really the term you want to imply to a white boy who made a list about which mom he liked to fuck the most? Yeah, but I agree with them. It shouldn't go on his permanent record. That's fully crazy. Right. This actually is a situation where restorative justice would be appropriate. I know that the creators, I guess I don't 100% know, but it feels like the creators need to make this woke is what pulls it back a little bit. And then the the ultimate comedic beat is that the principal says that a group of mothers were overheard objectifying a male student. And then that's it. It's just that that's the end of the plot line, guys. I'm fine with that as the end beat. So Carrie is recording her audio book. Her publisher comes in and Carrie begs her. She's like, are you sure Julianne Moore, Julianna Margulies, or any of the Juliannes could do this instead? And her publisher says, actresses were fine for the other books. It's like, wait, what other actresses were doing the <laughs> audio books for Carrie Bradshaw's books? I think she means voiceover actresses, but Carrie is invoking like famous actresses that we all know and love. Although, can you imagine if her publisher came back to Carrie and was like, You know what, Carrie? I got a surprise for you. We got Juliana Rancic to record your book. As this episode goes on, I think Carrie would take Juliana Rancic just so she doesn't have to read the chapter about big dying. Yeah, which is chapter three. She is struggles to funk. She knows that the studio has been booked for like five days. Well, she thinks it's three and that her publisher ruins her whole week by being like, no, 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 it's five. This scene, I mean, not this scene, but the her reading the audio book 
stuff really fucking got me. Like by the end of it, I was actually sobbing. I think I just have a gray black heart, Chelsea. I felt nothing. <laughs> Seriously? No, I think it's very effective. I think the writing was incredible. The writing of how Carrie would write about this experience was so fucking legit. But we'll get into that a little later. Because we got to go to the West Coast, baby. We got Miranda rehearsing with Che, reading the script. Again, this is something I don't know if people who don't work in the industry would find this as amusing as people who are familiar with scripts. But yeah, scripts are hard. They're hard to read. What is supposed to be inflection and what is dialogue? Especially when you're reading your script on a shitty android. <laughs> A lot of Android burns in this episode. Establishing that Miranda doesn't know how to use her new Android is the secondary function of this scene. Again, Miranda is someone that has her awkward doofusy moments, but I reject the idea that she is bad with technology because she was an early adopter of cell phones and whatnot. Well, that was the Miranda of Sex and the City. Miranda, and just like that, has gone through a doofusication. Yes, it's true. Speaking of very, very legit writing within this episode, the fake dialogue for this scene is so impressive. Quote, you want to call yourself non-binary? Be non-binary. I just don't want to lose my little girl is the most fucking legit network television dialogue I have ever heard. Yeah, on a very special episode of Che Pasa. See, if I was in charge of marketing for and just like that i would get fired because i would be like guys we got to put four-year consideration billboards for che pasa all up down the sunset strip i believe our pitch for che's television show was just to call it hey it's che diaz obviously no one listens to us it's also feels very a very special episode with the fact that che has to cry in this scene and they're like i'm not gonna do that and i do love Miranda being like, but it says it. Like, Miranda, ever the literalist. <laughs> yeah, it's not just that the scene description says that Shay is crying. Tony Danza's character is literally reacting to them crying. We have our feelings about Shay, but I do agree with them that they don't want to cry because they don't want to associate being non-binary as something wrong. Yeah, totally. Because that is the way that queer stories have traditionally been presented in the media, especially television shows of this nature. Although I'm not sure a network comedy that wants to <laughs> have the non-binary character crying in the pilot episode. But, you know, I instead of a inside the writer's room with Michael Patrick King, I need an inside the writer's room with BD about, <laughs> about the pilot for Che Pasa. I actually like this plot line for Che because they are being confronted with this even more embarrassing Hollywood version of themselves. And I feel like the writers are speaking to us, the audience, about the Che Diaz discourse through these scenes. I agree. And I also think that why this bad dialogue is so funny is because Michael Patrick King as well as the writers of this episode, Julia Rottenberg and Eliza Zersky, come from the network comedy world. Yeah. So obviously this is them working through some stuff as well. Totally. Meanwhile in New York, LTW is shooting Naya for her documentary. And we know that she's working because she's wearing her like fierce glasses. That's work mode, LTW. What do you think her documentary is about? It has to have something to do with the legal system. But do we know any more beyond that? No, I, I hope there's a Tribeca premiere for this documentary. But yes, Naya is being asked about Constance Baker Motley when uh, her mic disappears. And the hot sound guy has to fix that. And then he basically starts flirting with her, asks her out. And afterwards... Naya's like, that was like a little intense, right? From the sound guy. And LTW freely admits like, oh yeah, he didn't go mic fishing on the circuit court judge that I interviewed yesterday. So she's basically saying like, oh yeah, he sexually assaulted you well, <laughs> just now. I mean, <laughs> I know not actually, but you know, she's saying it was like not necessary and out of line with his typical behavior. I think, yes, I don't, 
<laughs> I think she would have done a citizen's arrest if she felt like it, what he was doing was actually criminal. But I think she's making the point that, like, yeah, he was flirting with you. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that the writers are treating Naya and her separation from her husband that we saw for a few minutes last season with such kid gloves. And, like, with someone like Miranda, they're like, yeah, they just get finger banged and they instantly leave their husband that you as the audience has seen for six years in two movies. But with Nia, it's like, we got to be careful. We can't get her back into the dating world too quickly. It's like, I don't give a shit about Andre. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or his beanies. No shade to the actor again. It's just there's an abundance of side characters. I do love the next scene, which has basically all of the new girls that are living in New York together having lunch. Yeah, I liked that scene too. You have, I guess, Carrie leaving her audiobook recording to have a lovely lunch with Charlotte and LTW and Naya join them. Yeah, I liked the bit where they're talking about the MILF list and Charlotte says to Naya, our lunch conversations aren't usually this lowbrow. And Carrie's like, who have you been eating with? Yeah, that was a line from the trailer. I do love the dialogue in this scene. Carrie has a line to Naya. She goes, Naya, you clearly cover this in your class about MILF law in the 21st century. Yeah, that was good. It's within the character but I think this is why I have a resistance to what you're talking about of this episode being fun because it does go there and it is kind of politically incorrect and raunchy and they're talking about the MILF list and Charlotte's doing her Charlotte thing. And then Naya has the, no, 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 it's great, but maybe we should switch gears and talk about abortion rights, how our democracy is hanging on by a thread or how our planet is dying. Yeah, and then she gets a text that's like, oh, never mind, the hot sound guy just texted me, which I think is a funny beat. But I was like, is she saying that seriously or is she joking? This is one of the things that I feel like I will be asking every episode of this season, which is, are the writers in on the joke or are they not? I think it depends on the situation. This, yeah, for sure. Back in the studio, Carrie is reading chapter three again, and the audio engineers have a noticeable lack of human empathy for this woman. I feel like that must be real. Now, we should say we, we did write a book. We did not record an audio book. Frankly, we're shocked that there's an audio book that exists for, for our own book. But I think like Carrie, we would have had an anxiety attack while trying to record it. So possibly. The hairs stood up on my arms when the shower noises came in. The sound design, the blurring of the words, all of that is kind of outside the realism we generally see in Sex and the City and in Just Like That, but it was incredibly effective and powerful. I mean, I wasn't a little bitch and didn't cry about it, but I thought it was well done. <laughs> Not even when she said he looked so small, I forgot how big he was. No, I more was like, did he look small? He's like twice your size. Well, I feel like don't you lose like 21 grams? Like something like is lost. I feel like people do look smaller. I will agree with Carrie. I do think it's wrong and unprofessional for the author to be this emotional while reading their book. Like, I don't want to feel like I do watching a Drew Barrymore interview listening to Carrie's audiobook. True. So then Carrie leaves and she runs into Bitsy Von Muffling, who... Is it an asymmetric poochie blouse? This was the best scene. Very heartwarming, funny, everything you would want from Sex and the City, but updated for women of these age. I will give, this is the best scene. Yeah, of I agree. And who knew that Carrie just needed a pep talk from Bitsy Von Muffling? Although I have a question. Is this actress friends with Michael Patrick King? Because she's been getting a lot of screen time in Just Like That. It's great and it's well used, but... It's curious. There were so many incredible guest stars on Sex and the City. It is interesting that she is the one that just keeps coming back. But, you know, I'm into it. I think this was great. Also, it, it touched me when she was talking about how the second year is harder and explaining why that is. I will freely admit this is something that feels based on the writers and their experiences or their friends' experiences, and it's just something we can't understand because we're not there in our lives. Yeah, we haven't lost a spouse. Right, but that feels like probably a truism. For sure, because she's talking about how the passage of time sort of moves you further and further away from the person that you're grieving. And she says that's the dirty little secret is that the first year is basically easy. The second year is worse because you are moving on with your life without them. 
and that becomes readily apparent. She says that the hole of grief never gets filled, but you know what you can do, Lauren? You can get a fucking facelift. You can get a $100,000 facelift, which even though you got one, you still have to get your mustache waxed. It's like, yeah, what would a facelift have anything to do with hair removal? Well, also it's like you can just get laser hair removal. Did I mishear this or does Bitsy Von Muffling refer to Carrie as King Carrie Bradshaw? I did not note that. I don't know. It was giving me King Kylie vibes. So Carrie decides to go make herself feel better by going on a shopping spree at Bergdorf Goodman. Yeah, one woman's $100,000 facelift is another woman's $15,000 shopping spree at Bergdorf. Good for her. She tries to read chapter three again in the privacy of her own home and then has a meltdown and calls the sound guy and lies about having COVID. Yes, her genius idea to get out of recording her book is to fake COVID. I don't think that's a bad idea. I think this, while pandemic references in television shows are generally something that I'm a little sick of at this point, I do think that this is a very believable thing that Carrie would do. And it's kind of nice to see her commit a slight moral transgression because we haven't seen that side of her in a while because she's been too sad. We're back to schemer, Carrie, and it's great to see. Yeah, and this lie doesn't really hurt anyone, but it lets the audience know that she's still flawed, like you and me. Aw. And then we cut back to the West Coast. What is this T-Mobile promotion going on? Because we've got Miranda in a T-Mobile store finally getting an iPhone. I don't know. She gets her phone fixed. Yeah. She's in West Hollywood. She walks into a tattoo shop looking more conservative than she's ever looked in her life, I think. Well, not to be Google Maps, Lauren, but that is a tattoo shop called the Honorable Society Tattoo Parlor and Lounge. And it is on Santa Monica Boulevard down the street from uh, the first dispensary we ever went to, Chelsea. Oh, yeah. Love that. She goes inside and starts chatting to this guy. And they've obviously bonded. She says she wants a tattoo to remind her of the person she never wants to be again. And he goes, like, the person that worked a corporate law job. And I'm like, I'm sorry, was it the resolution of Sex in the City 2 that she got not a shitty law job? We saw her at the end of Sex in the City having a big salad outside at a new law firm. <laughs> okay, but that still was like the bulk of her career. And she was presumably, while she was outside and eating big salad, she was still working like maybe not 80 hours a week. Maybe she was 70 at that point, but still. So the tattoo artist offers her some, some robot tattoo options. I thought that was a really cute idea, personally. Would you get a little a robot tattoo? Jetson's robot? No, I mean, maybe the Prada robot. Actually, that would be better for Miranda since she can't commit. She could get one of those little Prada robot like bag charms and like hang it off of her giant backpack. She doesn't get a tattoo, at least not in that moment. She calls Carrie, who is organizing her closet. That Vivian Westwood gown, nowhere to be seen <laughs> in this relatively <laughs> tiny closet. But... This is maybe my favorite piece of dialogue of the episode. I'm on the precipice of doing something either really stupid or really liberating, to which Carrie says, if this involves the Church of Scientology. I thought that was great, too. I really liked that. Great L.A. reference. And a great, like, what a New Yorker would think someone getting indoctrinated into the L.A. lifestyle would be. Totally. Miranda asks about how the audiobook recording is going. Carrie says that she got covid uh, Miranda says, COVID, it finally got you. So Carrie never got COVID? I mean, you never got COVID, right? Or did you? No. Yeah, see, it happens. Carrie reminds Miranda when Miranda says that everyone's getting tattoos. Why shouldn't I get a tattoo? Carrie goes, everyone's getting them removed. And then Miranda says, and I am afraid of commitment. Is that true? Is that something we feel about Miranda, that she's someone who's afraid of commitment? Kind of. She didn't want to commit to Steve, but maybe that's because she wasn't straight. <laughs> I'm fine for in just like that, making her queer, but this idea that she wasn't fully in love with Steve and their lifestyle, she fucking left Robert to be with Steve. That was a very conscious choice. She didn't want that kind of D, though. <laughs> she wanted that like pleasure chest D. Ugh. Yeah, do we get a resolution with the strap on at all? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see if uh, we'll see if it comes back. Uh, Carrie begs Miranda to come back before she gets a, a neck tattoo. To which Miranda says, 
I'm not getting one on my neck. I'm not joining a gang. And it's like, ooh, just as soon as Daddy MPK giveth with the good dialogue, he taketh with the cringy dialogue. I did like the dialogue, though, where Miranda was like, I'm not coming back. It's fun out here. It's like pretend life. I never want it to end. And... I relate to this read of Los Angeles as someone that did live in New York. And in fact, I still feel this way. And that's why I have not moved back. Yeah, no, I mean, living in New York is objectively harder than living in Los Angeles. Like that's real life. This is some sort of pretend shit that we're doing. <laughs> I mean, look at what we're doing. Our quote unquote job is Yeah, what kind of job is this? <laughs> Truly, it's insane. So then we have Carrie with the Lueve balloon shoe. Beautiful. I do think that Carrie would be very into Jonathan Anderson's surrealist vision. This completely checks out. It also really like situates this in the fashion landscape of 2023 in a way that is nice. Oh, absolutely. And then this is the scene where Charlotte calls Carrie and Charlotte is wearing a Burberry shirt and a Burberry apron. Ride or die. What is this chocolate shop? Arsano's? I don't know what this is, but it sounds fabulous. Whatever Charlotte is sending to Carrie as a care package. Right, because Charlotte has heard that Carrie has COVID. So the lie is getting out of control at this point. So I was going to ask, because I know you love a minor illness, but have you ever faked an illness? Well, yeah, to have like a mental health day from an office job, but not to like any of my close friends, no. And this is the problem with a lie, is that it can so easily spin out of control. Yes. Especially when you have friends who evidently call each other behind your back. <laughs> I do like, in this episode, the idea of the off-screen conversations that are happening between Charlotte and Miranda. Like, I like the idea that they keep in touch. Even though we don't get a call between the two of them, this is happening in between scenes. Right. So then we have a brief scene where Seema is mourning the loss of her Birkin by potentially looking for its replacement on first dibs. And I I'm sorry to be this person, but just a small thing. <laughs> okay, the bag that Seema had stolen is very clearly an ostrich skin Birkin. Exotic skins are extremely rare and extremely expensive. And should be illegal while we're, <laughs> he while we're here. The bag that she's looking for is a light brown Birkin bag for $28,000. And that is crazy expensive. However, I found Seema's ostrich skin <laughs> orange brown Birkin on first dibs. And it's currently going for $65,000. They wanted to make her just slightly more relatable. I will say that Seema's bag is fake as fuck. It looks fake, and it probably is, as it should be, considering that where the bag ends up. However, I've heard that this is a real thing with very wealthy women, that they have a ton of fake bags. Like, they have real bags. Oh, yeah. But then mixed within it are fake Birkins and Chanel bags. Right. They're calling them super fakes now, which are the ones that are like, pretty much indistinguishable, like have certificates of authenticity, that sort of thing. So now we have a scene where Seema and Anthony are having lunch together. Logical pairing. Happy to have a spinoff show with the two of them. Just bitching about overpriced gazpacho. <laughs> to which Anthony says about the $24 gazpacho, that's $2 of soup and $22 worth of them having balls. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was funny. Anthony also tells an interesting story when Seema discusses that the overpriced soup is another way that the city robs you. And Anthony tells a story about a trick stealing his dad's money clip while he was cuffed <laughs> to the bed. I know. I know that that's a throwaway line and it's not what the scene is about, but it leads to so many questions. So Anthony was a sex worker in his youth? That's what I took away from this. And I had to like, I questioned myself because I was like, wait, the trick is the client, right? The trick is like who pays the sex worker. And I, so I Googled it and it's like, yes, trick. Customers who purchase the woman slash man for sexual purposes in exchange for money. So I guess he was like strolling around the Chelsea Piers back in the day or something. Or do we think the writer's aren't really sure what trick means. I mean, that's very possible. And meant it as more of like a, a, a fling or a person I was fucking or just nebulous gay terminology or something. Or that they think that Anthony hired a sex worker. 
Right. Who stole their money clip. Also, either way, this feels very weird that Anthony would, in season five, out Marcus as a former sex worker. I think the thought process was probably that he did hire a male prostitute. Now, all I can think about is, like, Anthony, like, being in an episode of Pose or something, like, anyway. This isn't even the point of the scene. It's all we can focus on, but the point of the scene... (laughs) Chelsea, is the fact that Carrie continues to have terrible brunch etiquette because she has ditched Seema and Anthony because she has fake COVID. And the problem with faking an illness is all of the things you had on your calendar. So Seema texts her and she's like, oh shit, I got COVID, I I can't come. But she's never had good brunch etiquette. Do you remember when she made all the girls come to, in the dead of winter, brunch, and she just didn't join because she was with the Russian? Okay, that was one time, though. Like, give the girl a break. I do like the line that Anthony says, now she has COVID, that's very off-trend for her. Meaning that Carrie is so on-trend that she would have gotten it when everyone else had it? Right, like at the height of the pandemic. Yeah, and now we're at the Warner Brothers live taping of Che Pasa. Why is Miranda waiting in line with the normies? As previously stated, I worked for Brooke Shields for one summer as a child, and I got invited to a Suddenly Susan taping, and guess what, Chelsea? I got VIP treatment. (laughs) I waited in no line. (laughs) Is that the only time you've ever watched, like, a multi-cam sitcom? Yeah, I wasn't exactly (laughs) buying tickets. I don't fucking know. You grew up here. I didn't have the option to go to Friends tapings. I didn't have that option either. So Miranda lies about having her phone and smuggles it in. We, of course, know where this is going as the audience, of course, but I do think it still pays off. I know you don't want to settle down in a child storyline, but she keeps her phone because Brady calls her from the most Greenwich Village looking street oh, in I Amsterdam. <laughs> I know, I know. I thought that too. And we now understand why we've set up that Miranda hasn't been getting calls because Brady has been calling her for days because his girlfriend broke up with him and he's crying in the streets of Greenwich Village, Amsterdam. He walks into traffic as you sometimes do when you're crying about a breakup and walking the streets and a car almost hits him and she goes, what is that? And he's like, it was a car. It almost hit me, but I wish it did. Not Brady being vaguely suicidal. He is, as Miranda later describes, in crisis though, right? He's going through it. For sure. And she does the right thing, which is call me from the hostel. And so I can't believe that for the pilot episode of Che Pasa, it's that secretive. Like they have to put their phones in those neoprene cell phone jails. I feel like you have to do that whenever you see anything now. It's clear you're right where this is going. I call this Chekhov cell phone. <laughs> yes. So now we're, we're in the taping. There is a joke about Che's Bob's big boy haircut. <laughs> that was perfect. The showrunner BD is talking along to their own cringe dialogue. Oh, also, I have a correction from the last episode. Abby McAney, not non-binary, just a butch dyke. Oh. Even though I watched her TV show, I think part of me assumed that on and just like that, a non-binary role would not be given to a cis person just because of how this show is about representation in general. But I think that she is so good in the role of Che Diaz's oppressor. Uh, Yes, and Miranda's phone goes off at the most emotional scene when Che has to cry, and BD reads Miranda and Che to filth, saying Che isn't an actor, they're a stand-up. Yeah, that was rude. And Tony Danza to the rescue. I'm a dad's lion, or what? again, whatever his stands are called. He rescues the vibes of this live taping. That is a man who, is, who has done multicam for 40 years. He's like, I need to get this shit back on track. He also looks like fresh as fuck. Like, who's doing his skin? Like, he has like some Barbara Sturm-like situation happening. Also, his hair is perfect. Not a strand out of place. Yeah. I do remember this from my singular multicam taping. They have terrible stand-up comedians warm up the crowd. Oh, of course. That's what happens at the end of this scene is the stand-up for the audience is trying to get them back on track and they misgender Che, to which BD goes, who they are. They, 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 they. (laughs) That was a big choice. 
I don't know. It made me laugh. Yeah, it made me laugh too. I don't know if they would scream lady at the phone at Miranda though. Very gendered for someone with a short haircut and a jumpsuit. How dare you assume my gender? Oh, that would be great. Miranda like lies about being non-binary just to like diffuse the awkwardness of that situation and put it back on BD. Well, that's my other thing is wouldn't Miranda and BD have been introduced at some welcome dinner during the process of the Che Passa pilot writing and filming? I think Che was trying to protect Miranda from BD. I do like the moment at the end when the Warner Brothers security guard says to Miranda, I believed you. You felt that, that embarrassment and the shame from Miranda. I lied. This might be my favorite scene of the episode because I always love Charlotte and Miranda bonding over motherhood. Like it reminded me of maybe the only good scene in Sex, Sex in, in the, the City, City 2. <laughs> Which is them bitching about being mothers and drinking at the bar. Okay, but like, have you also seen the part where they do karaoke? Because (laughs) that was pretty mage. You're correct. I guess what I was referring to is the most realistic scene. Um... I do love Charlotte being mama bear and saying, you know, you don't worry about Che right now, which frankly, as an audience, we've all been saying, don't worry about Che, Miranda, you focus on you. Totally. Also, you are again glossing over the point of this scene, (laughs) which is that Richard Burton is wearing the most adorable little rain slicker and rain booties. Do you think you could get that on Francis Quito? I'll figure it out. I feel like that (laughs) would be a good thing for him to wear because like Bulldog's body types are very like you can't just buy them any dog clothes. Like you have to buy like Bulldog specific stuff sometimes if it's not like a hoodie or something like oversized. Because they're so barrel chested. Yeah. So we're back at a... COVID central, Seema has arrived with lunch, Carrie's mask, her cloth mask says oy vey, and she quickly admits to Seema that she's fake COVID. I like that. You have to tell someone. If Samantha was in the show, that's who this character would be. That's who Carrie would Would tell. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, I totally understand this lie. If I was in the situation that Carrie was in, I would a thousand percent fake COVID to get out of this and not have any fucking problems with it. The only thing is I wouldn't lie to my friends about it. I would be like, I legit had a nervous breakdown while reading chapter three. And we get Carrie's reasoning as to why she lied to her friends in this scene. Before we get into it, I just got to say, very shocked that the wine featured in the scene wasn't SJPX in vivo wine. I know. But Carrie's reasoning is of why she's lying to her friends is I can't put my friends through this again. There's only so much grief I can put them through. I totally get that because her line about having COVID is really ultimately an act of love for her friends. That is beautiful. However, some of the dialogue I was like, huh? Because Carrie says to Seema, I hate feeling sorry for myself. And I'm like, has this Carrie met the Carrie of season two and three? This Carrie is a different girl. I think we can all admit that, right? I guess so. But she she also tells Seema, I'm not a crawl in the bed type. And I'm like, really, may I introduce this Carrie to the first film Mexicoma Carrie? Yeah, Carrie, remember when Samantha Jones was fucking spoon feeding your <laughs> ass because you couldn't even feed yourself uh you know what actually maybe carrie's right she's like how much more can i put my friends through (laughs) it's true her relationship with big has kind of ruined all of their lives when you think about it what they've been through but Seema steps up she's like look I wasn't around for the first round so I'm here now and admits I was in the fetal position over a bag to which Carrie says not just a bag a Birkin this is also my issue with the Birkin storyline because without the sex in the city episode about Samantha trying to get the Birkins I really do feel like Birkins wouldn't be as popular as they are today I agree What would a Magnolia cupcake be without Sex in the City? So it's nice that it is self-referential, but it does call into question the reality of Sex in the City and in Just Like That. Totally. And again, I understand why they picked this particular bag, but it would be nice to give the Sex in the City stamp of approval to something else. Seema then quickly checks herself and she's like, "Uh, I'm not trying to equate the loss of a Birkin with the loss of your husband. And Carrie goes, I mean, you kind of are. It's all relative. Uh, You lose your husband, I lose my handbag. Look, 
what's harder to replace? Let's be honest here. And then Carrie is like, oh shit, I gotta go to Lizette's jewelry pop-up because she doesn't know I have fake COVID. It's like, why not have fake COVID for that too? That's a simple text message. Well, she can't betray Lizette because as she said in the opening scene, you're the only person I care about coming to this, aside from the buyer from Neiman's or whatever. Good joke. Yeah. She goes and we, the audience, witness what is most definitely the strangest and most brazen crime I have ever seen in my life. Which Seema notes, why is the cater waiter stealing the jewelry? Like I said, I do really like this episode, but I feel like the way that this played out felt a bit off. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) I mean, look, Carrie and her nameplate necklace is a catch-all that has been used throughout the series. It is very much herself. She cannot lose the necklace or else she loses herself. And so when the thief wants that necklace, which like, fucking why? Yeah, I know. It's not a diamond necklace. Carrie tries to dissuade the would-be thief by saying, I have COVID, which does not make the thief run. It makes everyone else run around them. Which, would that be the reaction? I don't think so, but whatever. Which only, I guess, makes the thief want this nameplate necklace, which has no value other than purely sentimental value, as Carrie explains to the Russian in season six. But thankfully, Seema's there to save the day with a gun. I loved that. Don't worry, Seema's not packing, guys. It's just a lighter. I wish she was actually packing. Am I the only one that thought that? Well, like, if Seema had been walking around with a loaded gun in her handbag this whole time, that would have been major. That would have put her in a very, like, Tarantino heroine kind of place. Would love this version of the show. While Seema is able to save Carrie's nameplate necklace, I feel like I should note, she did not get Lizette's jewelry back. Yeah, why were you <laughs> holding out for Carrie's nameplate necklace. It's overshadowed by the joke at the end where the guard's like, you can't smoke in here. But Lizette literally can be heard off screen at the scene going, I've lost everything. Yeah, too bad, bitch. Carrie like walks out of there with her necklace still intact. So Miranda, I guess, has been wandering the Warner Brothers back lot for hours, I guess. I mean, these these tapings take forever, Chelsea. That's Do my, they? That's my memory in the back. Yeah, a few hours. Okay, also, would Miranda's phone have fucked it up that much? Because they had already finished the dialogue. I think the idea is that I mean, as BD says, Che is not an actor. They are a stand-up, which means that they were at the precipice of having a real emotional moment and they will never be able to get there again is what I took from the scene. If anything, wouldn't Che be more emotional going into the second take? Maybe if Che was an actor, but again, they are a stand-up. Che admonishes Miranda for ruining the big family scene to which Miranda very correctly says, I had my own family scene and it was real. And then like, you don't understand because you don't have kids. I'm shocked that Che is shocked that Miranda is leaving them. It's like Che has made everything about themselves and is shocked that Miranda is making this about herself and like a real big fucking family issue. Totally, but I am kind of on Che's side. Like Brady is an adult. He's already on the plane. Yeah, what are you going to do? Everyone has their first big breakup slash nervous breakdown. That is a part of life. Che is correct, but I just think Che's behavior over the last year to then be shocked that someone is making a personal decision and isn't being codependent to you is a little bit funny to me. I also don't think Miranda's presence is going to save the Che Passa pilot taping. That's true. That's true. I guess, I don't know. I do feel more sympathy to Che. Maybe I just like Che more when they're down a little bit. Like, between being terrorized by BD and Miranda, like, fucking up their take, like, they're in a rough place. And then Miranda gets home. We see that she does get a tattoo, MH for Miranda Hobbs. I mean, I guess it's better than a wrist tattoo that says breathe or I am, I am, I am. And then... Brady comes through the door 
and sobs like a little bitch in Miranda's arms. Again, I don't want this storyline. We've all been through a terrible breakup. We've all cried publicly on the streets. <laughs> the streets of uh, Noita. <laughs> Of Greenwich Village, Amsterdam. <laughs> but Brady sobs, everyone's breaking up, and Miranda's like, I'm not. And it's like, hey, hey, hey. So she says, we're not. You always have me, is what she says, right? He's obviously referring to getting broken up with by his girlfriend. And also, in the timeline of the show, only, what, six weeks ago, four weeks ago, his mother left his father, Yeah, I never really thought about the timeline, but if that is the case, it's like, yeah, of course he's having a menti B. And Miranda doesn't seem to understand. It's like, what do you mean everyone's breaking up? I'm right here. (laughs) So Carrie goes down to Lizette's nonsensical ground floor apartment and re-gives Charlotte's get well present to Lizette. Also, she has Lizette's keys. Yeah, but also I maintain like another thing about it girls is that they don't lock their doors so she could have just walked in off the street i feel which we know is true because in the first season carrie goes down to that unlocked apartment and just enters it while lizette is sleeping with the candle on that's yeah like several dozen candles burning lizette is understandably upset everything is gone she has to start over because you know your friend didn't stop that thief (laughs) from stealing all of my shit Yeah, I felt for Lizette in this moment. I was also here for this moment of Carrie and Lizette in bed together. Super sad. Yeah, I thought this was really, really touching. And I love when Carrie says, at some point we'll have to get up, but not now. They can be depressed together in the comfort of their own brownstone. This gives Carrie the strength to finally read chapter three. I will say, you are correct. The writing within Love and Lost, that's what the book is called. I want them to get a Pulitzer and an Emmy for whatever this single page is. Is this what made you sob when she says, the blue of my wedding shoes turned black? As I held on to John, one final time, the rising water on the shower floor turned the blue of my wedding shoes black. I'm getting chills again. I literally am. It's very well written. It's perfect. It's moving. It's so visual. It's so effective at manipulating our emotions and also i should mention incredible performance by sarah jessica parker always 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 but i feel like this is kind of the biggest most emotional scene she's had since he died really yeah and again i know we've said this last season a few times but it remains for this season no matter the issues we have with the storyline or the the scripts or anything The actors remain amazing. Oh, we almost forgot to get into Seema's triumphant reunion with her bag. Seema is in traffic. She gets out of her chauffeured car. And thanks to a cute Pomeranian, she spots her bag that was tossed in a flower bed, question mark. I thought that was a beautiful moment. Yeah, I love this for Seema. This would never happen unless her bag was indeed fake, but glad. Great. Crazier things have happened. I'm sure this has happened to someone. Well, as we know, the writers, everything in this show must be based a little bit on something that's happened to someone. But I will say that this Birkin plot does feel very Emily in (laughs) Paris-esque in general, including the Pomeranian detail at the end. Well, you know I'm here for a Pomeranian. The episode ends with Seema and Carrie eating at a communal table. Communal tables are a true epidemic in New York City. As someone that is mildly antisocial, <laughs> I'm sort of triggered by them, don't you think? Yeah. I don't know in a post-COVID world if we were having as many communal tables. That was the saddest when they put the plexiglass up and divided oh, the communal God. tables. I know, I know. Well, does Republic still exist, though? Is what I want to know. Call in. Let us know. There are a bunch of hot Aussies. They come over. Seema goes, okay, I'm into New York again. And then we have the last line. And just like that, I got COVID. Wow, Chelsea. What a burn for the Australians who had an extremely strict lockdown policy. But that kind of checks out because it makes sense that they would be getting COVID now. Right. Because they were literally not allowed to leave for like two years. Fair point. Yeah, I love seeing some Australians, the tail end of this app. But okay, 
did she get COVID from just like chatting up these guys or from fucking one of them? Our own fan fiction is that they each went home with one. In my fan fiction, they all went home together. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We would like them to have gotten COVID from an orgy, but I think unfortunately it's just a... Just a, a fun chat with a bunch of Aussie boys. Maybe Anthony will have that as a plot line next season. And just like that, guys, we are done with the third episode of the second season. If you would like to hear even more thoughts that we have on and just like that, please join us for our after show and just after that. Where we will be discussing Kim Cattrall's new show, Glamorous, as well as the Writer's Room podcast. And we take some hotline calls. All right, guys, see you there. Or don't. It's fine. <laughs> we'll be back next week. All right, bye. Bye. Bye.